in this episode of Maritime Means. I remember those first few months just through and through my head, I just kept saying, fear is the thief of success. Like push through it. Fear is the thief of success. Like you're just because you're afraid of it doesn't mean that it, it's real. So I just kind of kept pushing and like, you know, you'd get a couple people being like, oh, I want to correct something you said. And I was like, okay, but 80% of the people that I'm saying it to don't know anything about it. So like, even if it's a little bit wrong, it's still mostly right. And I'm, I'm educating somebody. She's known as the Maritime Professor on social media, but she's also a lawyer and a content creator, so we're excited to break down the top legal issues facing the maritime industry today. So let's go ahead and get started. Hello again. I am your host, Blythe Brumley, and I'm proud to welcome in Lauren Began as our next guest of Maritime Means, a podcast by Spire Maritime dedicated to building a community of innovators. Lauren, welcome into the show. Thanks so much for having me, Blythe. This is so fun. I'm so excited to be here today. Likewise, you are one person on this list. Well, you know, when we decided that we wanted to start up this podcast, that that was high on my list of getting on the show. So I, I'm super excited to have this conversation with you because I think it's really timely. I think it's um, a lot of important issues facing the industry, both now and in the future. Um, but before we get into all of that, and as I mentioned in your intro, you're you're a lawyer, you're a business owner, and you're also a maritime creator. But but take us back to to Little Lauren. How did you get drawn into the maritime? industry? Yeah, so I'm from Michigan originally. So even though I'm out in, in the Boston area now, I'm from Michigan originally and grew up on the lakes. Um, so I I just found an affinity for sailing with my dad. You know, we would sail. I'm from Traverse City, so it's up north. So it's kind of, it's beautiful. There's there's always sailing around um, and just found that I really took to it. Um, so then I, I started to kind of figure out, okay, go to, lo- go to, go to college. You know, I went down to Hope College, which is in Holland, Michigan. Um, they, I was international political science and international studies because I kind of figured, well, if I, if I, I, I was really into languages because <laughs> I'm just a communicator. I just figured if I knew languages, I could like talk to more people out there. Um, and so, so I was kind of trying to like pull everything together, but then I joined the sailing team at Hope. Um, and I mean, gosh, I was just so, nothing else mattered. I, all I wanted to do was go sailing all day, every day. And so I figured, well, how can I combo that with like this international thing. And I was like, you know what? Maritime transportation is inherently international and maritime, right? Like ocean, like the, the ocean is what connects us all. So it kind of, I, I kind of accidentally bumped into uh, maritime laws as where I wanted to go. And so I, I was international political science, international studies, like I said, but I was like, oh, you know, I don't want to go to DC. Um, so I was like, well, maybe I'll go to law school for a little while. But my sole intention going to law school was to stay in maritime law. Um, I figured, you know, I, I maybe I won't hate what I do um, if I stay on on content or on the topic that I like. Um, so I did that. I found a law school out in Rhode Island. Um, Roger Williams University School of Law. They have a joint degree program where it was a uh, master's of marine affairs and a JD, a law degree. And so it was, it was maritime all throughout. So I came out of law school speaking the language of the law, all because I used to like to sail with my dad on the weekends. <laughs> Oh wow! So so you you not only have the you have the experience of of you know running a business and being a lawyer on you know I guess quote unquote the admin side of the maritime industry, but you also have that firsthand knowledge of what it's like to to be out on you know the lake or the ocean or the sea, and so you have that sort of you know that experience as well. Yeah. So you know I I didn't actually go to sea in the same way that like merchant mariners go to sea. So I, I you know I I didn't um, I, I certainly haven't spent much out on the ocean. Um, but I mean, everybody gets a little gumption <laughs> when you, when you kind of, I mean, the wind does its own thing. The waves do their own thing. You kind of have to like, just turn yourself over to the natural elements that you're, you're kind of subjecting yourself to. So, you know, sail team did that a lot. I mean, it was, it was bathtub sailing, right? It was small boats. So it wasn't too, too much of a, of a major thing. But, um, you know, one time I actually, had to swim. <laughs> this isn't. Uh, this wasn't what happened in in the sailing team. But um, a couple of my my friends and I, we had gone up to my nana's house. My uncle's teeny tiny little sailboat was out on the beach. Um, so we decided to go sailing. I forgot to put the plug in the back, and so it was taking on water. I mean, we were sailing, so we were doing okay. Um, but it was taking on water. It was a beautiful day. It was like kind of we were about to leave for the the weekend. It was like Sunday, right? Um, and so we get like kind of halfway across the lake, and like we're up to our knees in water in the boat. <laughs> I was like, 
I think I'm sinking the boat. Like, how is this happening? <laughs> Realize that I forgot to put the plug in. Um, but like in that moment, there's no like reset button. There's no like, you know, you, you somebody can come bail you out necessarily. And I was like, oh, my God, like, I don't I don't want to have to buy my uncle a new boat, <laughs> you know, like I was in college. And um, so luckily there was some fishermen who like came and, and saved my friends. But I was like, no, like captain goes down with the boat. Right. So I obviously didn't go down, but I was like, how do I, how do I figure this out? It's one of those moments, like I said, gumption that kind of gets attached to anybody who's in the maritime industry and, and you figure it out. So I tied a couple lines on the front and was like, it's not that heavy of a boat. I don't have too far to go before I can get to somebody's shore station, which is in, in freshwater. It's, it's like you can lift the boat right up and out of the water. That's kind of how you store it. Um, there's no like salt erosion that happens obviously in freshwater. Huh. Um, so I, I found somebody's shore station, put the boat on that, lifted it up out of the water, let it drain out. But the way that we got to the shore station was I had to like put the line over my shoulder and swim it in. Um, so wow. I, like I said, it was a small boat, but like you have to figure it out. <laughs> wow. What a great story. Yeah. It, Thank it, you for sharing. Kind of, like, of course, it's that kind of world that like anybody who's in maritime that's actually spent any time in the water, whether it's small boats or big boats, you have to figure it out. And so that that really yields itself well to any industry, really. Yeah, I, I love that because that, that's really at the crux of anybody who's working in global supply chain, maritime, logistics, for any aspect of supply chain, it's at some point you have to figure it out. And I, and I think that that is a perfect segue to, to get into sort of the, you know, the meat and potatoes of, of why we wanted to have you on this show and on this episode is because we know that 90% of everything moves by ocean shipping. But I, I'd like to tackle some some big picture questions that, that are affecting the maritime industry today. And one of those things that I, I think is kind of an oxymoron of a question to ask, but I'm going to ask it anyway. But what does normal look like in ocean shipping, especially after the last couple of years? Oh, gosh. Well, so so normal kind of takes a new form every 10 to 12, 10 to 15 years. So um, the most recent normal that we saw was really the alliance formation. Um, so that happened in kind of the early 2010s. Um, where the alliances were all combined, right? So we didn't have vessel sharing agreements of these alliances prior to that. And so they they were filed with the FMC as agreements. Um, and so that's what they have to do. So um, let's break it down a little bit. So we have um, these ocean alliances. There, there's some major ones. There's 2M, there's the Ocean Alliance. Um, there's the Alliance THE, which I think is supposed to be like the high efficiency alliance. Um, it's like an acronym actually. Um, so, so we have, and, and so all of the major carriers for the most part are in these alliances and really what they are is they're vessel sharing agreements. So it's similar to airline alliances. And that's probably the best example of how to understand it is airline alliances. You might book a, a book a ticket on Delta, but then you get your actual ticket and it says, you know, like Eagle Air doing business as Delta. That's the same idea behind the ocean mm. alliances is you might need to send your goods from Vietnam to Oakland, um, but the, the the line that you usually work with doesn't service that route. And so you might be on a code share, essentially, or a vessel share with somebody else in the alliance. And so you might have booked through um, Maersk, but really your stuff is moving on an MSC uh, vessel. So it's the same idea. Um, you know, so it, the whole idea of the alliances back when they first started was so that they could help the shipper have more options, have more more routes, you know, make it a, a better environment, um, and and honestly, kind of keep the rates down too, because or or keep the rates at, at kind of a good level. Because what was happening in the early two thousands was some of these alliance or some of these carriers were, I mean, they were losing money in an entire year. We saw billions of dollars of profits last year, but prior to they might have had a negative year. Um, and so, you know, I think nobody was more surprised by the billions of dollars than the the ocean uh, the ocean carriers themselves. Um, but so normal, you know, normal like a like a China to West Coast route might have been a thousand bucks, maybe twelve hundred bucks per box um, at the height of the pandemic and, and congestion get in or whatever you want to call it. Um, it ended up being up to twenty thousand dollars for that same box. So I mean, that was that was nuts, and it wasn't. You know, I I'm of the mind that it was still. There was still competition in the market. It was just crazy demands, crazy, you know, um, unavailabilities of space. I mean, you know, it was just everything was a perfect storm comboing it all together. And so a lot of people are calling 
you know, it, it cartels and price fixing and, you know, collusion and all of that. Um, I mean, it even made it into the, the, the White House, the State of the Union. Um, but it really, the FMC came out, the Federal Maritime Commission came out and said, no, it was, it was competitive. It was competition. It was just the nature of the market at the time. And so normal before was these carriers were competing tooth and nail to try to get your business, try to get these shippers business. Now the carriers were able to get billions of dollars and they're buying airlines and they're buying, you know, they're kind of um, diversifying their portfolios as well so that they won't get back to that losing money. Like their P&L statement had a negative at the end of the year prior to this whole shakeup. And so moving into the the coming years, it, there's a little bit more balance, especially among that alliance or how that alliance operates. Is that fair to say? Yeah. So, you know, moving into the, it's a pendulum, right? So the pendulum swang pretty far over onto the carrier side. Um, it was really benefiting them because they had the space, um, they, they had the, the vessels and everybody needed space to move their stuff. Um, people were buying like crazy, you know, all the spending power that used to be going to services like dining out was now going to goods. And so everybody was just competing to get on those boats to bring their stuff over. And so that's what we saw. And then you know, the, the ports couldn't handle that much volume. It, so it all came down to reduced capacity. We're shooting out the rates. Um, now we're seeing it swing back over. I, I even saw a report basically said that some of these shippers are saying, don't ship any more stuff. Our warehouses are full. Like we're, we're good for Christmas. Leave us alone. Um, so if you start moving into that world, you're going to have too much capacity, right? Like all the care, a lot of the carriers were buying new vessels, uh, throughout all of this when they were making billions of dollars, which only adds more space, more capacity, which, you know, in turn is going to drop those rates. So we're seeing that pendulum swing over to the shipper side right now where the the kind of shippers are king again. Um, I think we're going to see the pendulum move back. You know, I think it's going to, it's going to go back and forth until it evens out. It's, it's gotten such a whiplash um, that I don't think we're going to even out for, I mean, unfortunately, probably not another year or two, or maybe, I mean, I've even heard maybe five years, I think probably in the next two-ish years, we'll get back to normal-ish. But I, I also don't know if we'll get back to pre-pandemic normal because the game's changed a little bit, right? I mean, people now know a little bit more about ocean shipping where previously they might have been happy to just say, cool, it's showing up at the door. Um, you know, people are a little bit more engaged in the specifics of the maritime side. Maritime Means is powered by Spire Maritime. See how weather and maritime data can solve shipping, logistics, port operations, and sustainability challenges. And so when we're seeing these issues, or the, you know, the, as the return of the shipper or the, the shipper's market in this case, what is going on, I, I guess, on a global scale? Are these problems only specific to the United States? Or are there other, you know, countries all over the world that are experiencing the same level of, you know, consumer buying habits and port congestion and not able to find carriers and things like that? Or is this uh, mostly isolated to the United States? No, it's certainly happening all over the world. Um, yeah, it's it's definitely happening all over the world. And really, I mean, it's, it's kind of a, a, a perfect example of how one area can affect another. I mean, so the the zero China um, or zero COVID policy of China um, was shutting down those ports. And so, I mean, that's where, you know, we at 90% of everything moves by ocean transit. I don't know what the number is of coming out of China specifically, but it's a very high number. Um, and so all of those goods aren't only coming to the US, right? They're they're going to, to Canada. They're going to, you know, anywhere else in North America. They're also going to Europe. Um, Europe saw some, some significant... Um, I guess, stoppages and, and congestion moments as well. Um, they also, Europe also has um, labor struggles. So I was just reading this morning a report on uh, Port of Rotterdam was having some labor negotiation struggles, um, similar to our ILWU, the International Longshore Warehouse Union that's happening on the West Coast. Um, with Within our, in the U.S. system, um, the, the contract expired July 1st, and so they're currently going through negotiations for that. Um, they're seeing a similar type thing happening over in Rotterdam where they're trying to make contingency plans for how do we kind of move away from some of these terminals that might have stoppages or might have labor-related delays, um, similar to kind of how the U.S. is, is dealing with it. 
And and I'm glad you brought that up because I heard you say in one of your interviews that that it's more or less trending towards, you know, the concept of the empowered employee. And it's not just a United States thing, but, you know, port strikes are, you know, and, and rail strikes are happening all over the globe. Do you think that this is more indicative of of the, you know, maybe laws or, or legal ramifications, you know, things like that that need to change within the industry itself? Or is this more or less outside pressure, outside purchasing habits that are affecting the role of those jobs today? Yeah, I mean, I'm so I'm I'm pretty pro business in general. I mean, you know, I'm I'm, but I I want to see fairness across the board. And the thing that's happened in the past two years is there wasn't a lot of fairness for kind of throughout the employee side of it, right? I mean, we had um we had emergency workers who are essential personnel who were working every single day throughout the height of the scariest parts of the pandemic. And yet they never really got a break. Everybody just kind of came back to the office or came back to help them. Um, But they never really got a break. And then you kind of pair that with maybe they're a little bit disenchanted by the fact that they never got their moment of a, of a pause, of a relief, of a, or, or even like a, a true appreciation for the dangerous situation that they were in. Um, you know, I, and I think that we also saw, see, especially on the rail side, um, one of the main sticking points with the rail n- discussions was that they were basically on call seven days a week. They might not be working seven days a week, but like even on their off days, they could be called in. I mean, that's, you never get a break, right? I mean, like, like doctors, I I don't like, I feel like doctors that are on call, like they might go out for dinner and they're like, I can't have a a drink because I'm on call, right? Like the same thing would probably happen on the rail side. I can't have a drink. I'm, I'm on call. Like, I mean, so can you never relax? Are you never off? And so to me, that feels like that's unfair, right? Like that's a, that's a moment of like, well, that needs to be corrected. Um, And so I'm, I wasn't surprised to see the rail workers really kind of standing their ground on that because they were required, similar to port workers, similar to healthcare workers, to be there throughout the entire pandemic. But then they weren't really given, like, wouldn't you think that that would be a first starting point of like, look, you guys have done great. Also, let's correct this like imbalance that's always been there. You know, this is the moment. Let's let's give a little bit here because I mean, look, it's 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 always going to be difficult. Labor is always probably going to be the highest cost of any business, um, salaries, you know, whatever it is. But it also has to be fair. I mean, people still need to live their life. And I think that's what we saw. The hustle culture was reduced a little bit or at least muted and and kind of that return to family, uh, which I think everybody liked to see. Um, return to family and friends is, I guess that's what I call the empowered employee or the, the empowerment of the employee that we're seeing right now is, you know, trying to just make it a little bit more fair so that you can balance it out. It's not an overreach by the employees from what I'm seeing, um, but it is trying to balance it out. And, and that's not all the, all the way true. I mean, you know, ILWU is talking about some other issues, not only, um, you know, some of that, that um, I guess, time off. Um, there, there's some larger issues that have been looming for, for quite a few years there. As we talk about, you know, sort of the the growing, I guess, labor struggles and with the empowered employee and then couple that with a holiday shopping season that wasn't really the the boom that I think a lot of retailers expected. What does the the story of, I guess, global shopping or ocean shipping tell us about the holiday shopping season and what, you know, how that sort of ties into all of the other things that are affecting the maritime industry, you know, in the coming years? Yeah, I mean, I think this is part of the pendulum swing. So I think this is why the shippers are going to be king for a little bit, because, um, you know, if they're not asking for more goods to be shipped, the carriers are going to have to start playing the game of, well, how do we how do we convince them to ship it? How do we drop the rates so that they want to ship to put it in these overstuffed warehouses or to replenish these warehouses that, you know, that they probably figured some things out where they were able to take on extra warehouses during the pandemic when everybody had too much stuff. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think that's the game is like, how do we we had such a high movement of goods for so long, but then we're seeing a, not a, a connection of of um, the the. Um, demand for those goods. And so with the demand lower, we're going to have this like offset of just too much stuff hanging around. And so with too much stuff, I mean, I'm not an economist, but you know, with too much stuff, people aren't going to be shipping as much. And so that's going to keep those rates lower. Um, yeah, it's, it's going to be, 
It's going to be interesting. You know, usually there's a peak season right before Chinese New Year of all the shippers trying to get their stuff in. So the Chinese New Year means that the um, the the factories over in China will shut down for two weeks, sometimes a month. I mean, they shut down for a while. Um, and so during that time, um, usually we see a big bump right before and we're not seeing that bump happen. And so, again, this just all kind of shows me that it's going to be in the shippers favor for a little while. And unfortunately, a lot of shippers felt burned by carriers for, for for some time because the carriers were also trying to be smart about getting their profits. And so, you know, they were trying to make it so that, um, I mean, rightly or wrongly, but they were trying to get people to pay the $20,000 per box instead of their pre-negotiated rate of maybe it was 3000 or 4000 you know, whatever it was. Um, and so that's where they were having trouble. And, and hopefully, I just keep saying it's the long game here, right? Like it's, let's keep these relationships. You know, let, I hope people don't feel too burned. It turned into a very emotional thing, um, you know, because there's millions of dollars at stake here and they felt burned by these otherwise partners. There's only so many carriers out there. And so, I, I don't know. It's it sucks, but you know, a little bit you you want to figure out what happened. You know, kind of get some resolution, but then also figure out a way to move forward. One hundred percent. Very well said. And 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 getting into the the legal side of things, you mentioned negotiations. Let's get into the legal you know area of ex, of your expertise. I know that I have a few you know loaded questions here, and it might take up you know the majority of the rest of this interview. But I'd love for you to be able to break down some of these bigger, big picture legal issues that that are facing the maritime industry. And first, you know, I, I'll mention a few of them. So the Ocean Shipping Reform Act, the Jones Act, the FMC o- Open Rulemaking, then also the Detention Demur demerge rule. So all of these things, give us sort of the, I guess, the backstory and ultimately why changes were made to each of these. So let's start with Ocean Shipping Reform Act. Yeah. So the Ocean Shipping Reform Act is a reform of the Shipping Act. And so the Shipping Act of 1984 is what the FMC gets their authority from. Um, but it basically sets out like how the the Federal Maritime Commission regulates and, and provides limited antitrust. So, so basically, you know, these alliances were able to form or, or service contracts are able to be filed and with the FMC, basically these kind of secret negotiations that otherwise might've been considered monopolies are allowed to be kind of monitored to make sure monopolistic behavior doesn't happen. And so that's what the Federal Maritime Commission in part does is make sure that like in the interest of the global shipping world and certainly the U.S. consumer, importer and exporter, we want these relationships to form, but on the other hand, we want that we don't want to make it so that they start, you know, monopolizing the whole thing. And so, um, as you can imagine, they they keep a close eye on China and and some of the the behaviors there because um, China is often act backed by its government, and so that's where you get into controlled carrier. And so, when you have kind of I mean, when you have oodles and oodles of money to put behind a business, that's not a fair environment, right? And so that's kind of why that gets watched a little bit more. But so, so that's the Shipping Act generally that the gives the FMC its regulatory authority. So it was first amended in 1989, actually. So previously, it was conferences that these shipping companies, these carriers, were forming into, but they were member based um, and they were setting rates, and so. Or, or kind of setting rates. And so they were conferences. 1998 deregulated a lot of that and basically took a shift of now these conferences, it was no longer beneficial to have the conferences. And so we saw conferences go out. And so that's when we saw all the carriers were kind of doing their own thing. And then it wasn't until, like I said, the 2010s, they decided, okay, well, let's form back together. But now it's I mean, illegal to be setting rates. And so that's why it's vessel sharing, but they're not allowed to talk about rates. Um, And then flash forward to 2022, we had the Ocean Shipping Reform Act, which was now trying to put a little bit more regulation. So 1998, it was eight years of negotiation to get OSRA 1998, the Ocean Shipping Reform Act of 1998. Um, And and like I said, it deregulated a lot of the industry. And then here we flash forward to 2022. It was maybe six months, maybe a year (laughs) of negotiations. um, And they came out with this new set of what they wanted, a little bit more prescriptive control over the industry. Um, some of the things that came out in there were 
Um, Congress set out 13 different items that they wanted included in all invoices for detention demurrage, um, which was good because previously, I, I kind of use as my example, it could be a bar napkin that says 5,000 bucks D&D and like it gets slid across the table and you're like, I, what is this for? Like, I, like what container, what time period? Like there was no, there were no rules over what needed to be on that invoice. And so under the old rules, you probably could have slid a bar napkin with a number on it. Um, now, thanks to Congress and certainly kind of thanks to the follow-up work of the Federal Maritime Commission, it's a little bit more prescriptive. You have to have a container number. You have to have the dates that de- demerge or detention were for. You have to base the rules. So um, tariffs and schedules are where you'll find the rates um, published. And so you have to cite to where you're getting that rate from so that you can actually go and check it and say, okay, this invoice looks good. You're right. It's based on the correct rule. So there's 13 different kind of specific items that are just very basic that you're like, how is this not a rule or requirement before? Um, so th- those are some of the things. Then there were also rulemakings that were um, created from Ocean Shipping Reform-, Reform Act as well. When you you're talking about de- detention and demerge, it that is that separate from I guess the the overall I guess detention and demerge from the FMC open rulemakings or are all of those kind of all tied together? All tied together, yeah, all tied together. So that was one of the things that came out as a major problem once we hit the congestion. So let's break it down. So detention demerge. So um, because everybody kind of has different terms for the same things here. So demerge is essentially the box comes off the vessel and it sits on the yard. And so you might get a couple free days, a week maybe of, of you don't have to be there right the day that the vessel shows up at birth. Um, but you get maybe five days of it comes off the vessel, it's somewhere in the yard. And then it's supposed to be an incentivization charge. And so basically it's, okay, it's been here for five days. Look, you got to pick your stuff up. And so then for the next five days, you might get charged 50 bucks, 75 bucks a day. Cause it's like a little nudge, like, you got to move your stuff. It's been here now seven days, eight days. Like you got to move it. This is a this isn't a, a, a warehouse. This is a loading zone, right? Like keep it moving. Um, and then after an additional five days, you know, or whatever, whatever the terms are, you might pop up to two hundred and fifty dollars a day. And so that's where we're seeing some of that hyper demerge. And so if you have ten containers stuck, you're not allowed to go get them. You know that you uh, your trucker can't get an appointment, or the the terminal is saying we can't get it right now. It's it's buried in the back underneath 20 others. And oh, by the way, we have a ship coming today, so you can't pick it up today. So that's what was happening during container getting or congestion getting. Um, basically, they were making it impossible for the shipper or the beneficial cargo owner to go get it, um, but they were still charging them. And so hmm. we saw a lot of shippers have millions of dollars of demurrage or de- and detention is same, essentially the same principle, but for the use of the box. Um, so, you know, they, most of the boxes are, are rented or leased or whatever, uh, basically borrowed. They're, they're not owned by the, the beneficial cargo owner, the, the, peop- the, person, the shipper who's at moving the stuff. Um, so the same kind of principle applies. It's supposed to be incentivizing you to come pick it up. Look, you might have forgotten about it, but I'm going to get your attention so that you don't forget about it. You now have, you know, a thousand bucks worth of demurrage charges because you haven't picked it up yet. That'll kind of spur somebody into action. The trouble is there's a balance. At some point, the demurrage could become more than the value of the goods inside the box. And so you might have abandonment issues um, or spoilage issues, especially if it's a reefer. I mean, you might have shrimp that's like packaged and, and ready to be sent to, you know, the, the local grocery store. Um, but like if if it gets past that date, then that's worthless shrimp. And now that it's either the terminal's problem to get rid of it or, you know, the shipper might say, I'm just going to write it off. I mean, look, I don't need to pick up that shrimp. Um, so that's where you get into some of those problems. And it's less about the spoilage or the, or that's less of what we saw during the congestion get him. People still wanted their goods. They were so desperate to get their goods. Um, but they were having these millions of dollars of demerge or detention charges. And they're like, we, we can't keep going this way. So that's when Congress stepped in and said, look, we, we have some ideas on how to fix this. Um, the funny part was the FMC, the Federal Maritime Commission was already starting to kind of dive into that. And so Congress was like, hey, FMC, you should look into this. And they were like, got it. Already doing it. Thanks, Thanks guys. <laughs> 
real quick follow-up question. What happens to that kind of merchandise or um, if it's uh, provided that it's unspoiled, but it's the demerge fees are worth more than the actual merch or whatever is inside the container itself. What happens to that stuff if, if the shipper decides that we don't want it anymore? Yeah. So, I mean, that's kind of what happened when, when Hanjin went bankrupt, right? Remember the ocean carrier Hanjin? Um, what was it? 2014 ish, 2015. Um, they went bankrupt and their containers were just all over the world. Um, it went through bankruptcy court, I believe in New Jersey. And so uh, basically it made it so that the terminals were able to sell it off or basically anybody who had ownership or I should say possession of of the Hanjin stuff was able to sell it. But at at that point it was like, what's in this stuff? (laughs) Like what's in these boxes? Um, So sometimes you might see you know, like govdeals.com or whatever, like they might go up on there if it's like a a quasi public or public uh, terminal. Um, There's, there's a whole different, like empty boxes. You can usually kind of find a a donation program into the local community of people who might want them. Um, The goods inside, I mean, it's, it's always kind of case by case on that. You don't want to get stuck with spoiled food. You don't want to get stuck with spoiled oh, food yeah. by any means. When you were talking about the shrimp, I'm like, oh, that's disgusting. <laughs> I hope that they have like proper, you know, disposal requirements. Do they have proper disposal requirements for something like that if if, if it goes? Bad? I'm sure they do. You know, I'm sure they do. And so you might even get like, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know. It's usually there's some sort of like it's oftentimes prepackaged, um, you know, and so it's kind of usually maybe it might even be pre-labeled to wherever it's going. Um, Probably like burned up or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. What about the containers that are that are lost at sea? I, I follow a lot of um, th- those, you know, Mariner TikTok videos, and I see, you know, random like containers just dropping off in the middle of the ocean. One TikTok video actually showed, um, you know, another boat finding a container in the middle of the ocean, and they opened it up to find, you know, it filled with cigarettes. And so all the, you know, the people on the boat are taking cigarettes from the abandoned container. What happens to a container out at sea? Is it just, you know, a free for all for whoever grabs it first? I mean, kind of. It, it kind of depends depends on like what the terms of the insurance were. I mean, that's, that's certainly something that's part of it. Um, but sometimes it's fine. Finders keeper, like as the like childhood, it's, that's a real thing that that's kind of rooted in, um, maritime. <laughs> so, um, I love that. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes that's, that happens actually right now. Um, I guess there's a, a container that went offshore, um, off the, sh- off the coast of Alaska. And so there's just a bunch of Yeti coolers that are washing ashore and people, I mean, it's kind of like, I don't know. I guess you could try Christmas. to return. It fi- it's it's kind of like does the the owner claim ownership, and maybe you have a certain number. You know, there, there's kind of how can you prove that that actually came like serial numbers and all that. But um, yeah, I mean, I I think for the most part, there's a lot of lucky people <laughs> that are seeing. Yeah, because I mean, I immediately thinking like Alaska doesn't need to keep stuff cold in a Yeti cooler. <laughs> well, I wish that thing would have you know been abandoned off the coast of Florida. Or I something. know, right? I know. Well, I mean, I guess they have more bears, right? So like maybe they do have the, the a very true the very ruggedness true. of the Yeti. <laughs> Maritime Means is powered by Spire Maritime. See how weather and maritime data can solve shipping, logistics, port operations, and sustainability challenges. Last one on this list is the Jones Act, which I know is probably the, one of the more, it feels like the most complex out of all of these that, but but maybe correct me if I'm wrong. Give us a, a backstory of the Jones Act, because I, I hear a lot of people calling for it to just be dismantled altogether. And then other people, Sal, Sal Mercogliano, former guest of Maritime Means has, you know, de- debated on the, on this subject as well. Give us a backstory of the Jones Act and how it's still needed or not needed in today's time. Yeah, so the Merchant Marine Act of 1920 is what the Jones Act is rooted in. And so um, it's been around for quite some time, obviously, right? Merchant Marine Act of 1920. Um, there's a couple different layers. What it's kind of in in short known for is uh, promotion of the U.S. flag fleet. And so promotion said another way is kind of protection of the U.S. flag fleet. And so that therein kind of lies the, the trouble. Um, some people see uh, the Jones Act as so it's it's um, a requirement for U.S. trade um, to be U.S. flagged, U.S. Um, owned, U.S. 
um, mostly built because I think that there's some there's some exceptions that can happen. What that does is provides jobs for merchant mariners, right? So we have um, all of these um, maritime academies. We have them all over the country, and then we have the the um, the the Kings Point as well. Um, and so we're we're cranking out these mariners, but then we maybe don't have as many jobs for them. And and certainly there's some benefit to the the Jones Act as well because. So, okay, you say, well, what does it matter if we have a U.S. flag vessel going, you know, we, we have these foreign flag vessels that are moving, you know, goods from China to L.A. Why can't we just have them doing L.A. to Oakland? Uh, well, they do, but they don't actually move the goods from L.A. to Oakland. They, they might transship, but they're not allowed to pick up in L.A. and drop off in Oakland. That's part of what the Jones Act protects against. So that's where you have kind of a dedicated cabotage is what it's called, but basically like domestic trade of just a U.S. flag vessel could do that. So that could either be over the road, you know, trucking, um, that could be barged, or that could be a U.S. flag vessel. And so we see the U.S. flag a lot, like Hawaii to the to the West Coast, or um, even Puerto Rico to, to Florida. Um, and so what that does is, okay, so maybe you kind of start to think, well, what does it matter for that? But would you want a foreign flag vessel traversing up the up the Mississippi or like having the entire Mississippi just flooded with maybe not so friendly flag vessels coming in. You know, there, there's kind of that like national security element to, okay, well, yeah, maybe I want to protect that. Maybe I don't want these foreign vessels carrying oil up the Mississippi. Um, you know, I want them stopped at, at Houston. Okay. So that that's kind of one way to protect it. In general, I mean, it's providing the, the opportunities for the mariners and it provides us this opportunity to have a ready reserve fleet. So we have a, a litany of, of naval vessels out there and, and we have a litany of just general DOD, uh, Department of Defense and just general kind of military based vessels. But w- if we're in war, I mean, um, you know, I, certainly aviation has a big component to, to kind of any ma- modern day war, but also you got if you got to get a lot of stuff, be it fuel or equipment or whatever, that's probably going to be going over ocean. And so what we need is some of those vessels that are U.S. flagged to be able to flip over and turn into kind of a defense-based vessel. And so that's another um, reason for kind of promotion of a U.S. flag fleet and, and building it up. Um, and so... The trouble is really that it used to be well-funded. We used to have a really robust shipbuilding um, kind of society, um, and we've just lost the funding to support this kind of otherwise protecting um, legislation. And so legislation without that funding is creating this imbalance, or at least I think in part is creating this imbalance. And so if we're going to have the Jones Act, if we're going to stick by it, we have to support it. Um, look, if we're not going to stick by it, then, then get rid of it. Right. Like, I, you know, and I'm certainly not by any means proposing, pro, um, suggesting that we get rid of it, but I am saying we need to support it. Like it need it, if we can't have it hobble along, like it's doing right now. Um, we really need to have a, a more robust, a more rigorous shipbuilding society um, that can handle cranking out these vessels. We're seeing it in the offshore wind industry right now um, because that's something that is going to be Jones Act um, kind of adjacent. And, and I say adjacent because they are allowing for um, a vessel to go from a, a U.S. port out to a platform, and then they're going to have to drop off some of the goods to this platform so that a foreign vessel can come pick it up and install it because we just don't have U.S. flagged installation vessels. And we can't build them fast enough for all these offshore wind projects that are coming on on deck. And so how sad, right? Like this could have been a great U.S. flag fleet building up moment. And, and okay, so what is a cable layer or a turbine installer vessel going to do for this ready reserve fleet? You'd be surprised, right? It's another vessel. It's another it's another vessel that we could potentially be, be using. Um, but more than that, it would be providing great opportunities for our merchant mariners that were, like I said, cranking out in the industry in, in the U.S. here. So um, it's, it, it is controversial, but I think that it really kind of comes down to the controversy of we've let it kind of float out there with no gas anymore, you know, like, and so like, we can't just let it become a ghost ship. We, you know, pardon the metaphor, but we, we have to kind of go support it. And if we're, if we are going to keep it, let's support it. And let's see, you know, let's, let's get behind that. Do any other countries have a similar sort of Jones act or is this kind of like us based or, or relative to the U S only? Yeah, they do actually. So um, it was, I believe, roughly based off a UK um, prior law. Um, And so 
I was actually going to be covering that in one of my um, after the new year because I just kind of came across some information saying that kind of our Jones Act was was roughly rooted in in uh, UK previous um, kind of protectionistic uh, type type activities. Um, but cabotage, so like domestic trade, certainly isn't unique to the US, um, where you know from going from one domestic port to another um, is required to be without exception, um, you know, a, a, a domestic flag vessel, um, that that's seen elsewhere. All right. So, so last one on this list, as far as like the big picture, you know, legal areas of, of maritime is this maritime transportation data initiative. Give us the, the, the backstory, why it's important, if any, you know, changes need to be made to it, or if it's fairly new, I believe it's fairly new. Very new. Yeah. So this is a, an initiative out of the Federal Maritime Commission. So um, it was directed by the chairman, Dan Maffei. Um, he directed one of the commissioners. So there's five commissioners at the FMC. Um, and so there's a chairman and then four commissioners. Um, and so Commissioner Carl Benzel is the one who's uh, standing this up, essentially. So it's the Maritime Transportation Data Initiative. And what he's been trying to do, he, he's put out that there's three key objectives that he's kind of diving into. So it's cataloging the status quo in maritime data elements, metrics, transmission, and access. It's identifying key gaps in data definitions and classification. And third, developing recommendations for common data standards and access policies and protocols. So essentially, I mean, to kind of distill all that down, he's trying to figure out what data do we already have available that we're just not sharing with each other that we have no problem sharing with each other, right? I mean, it's just like, oh, you didn't, you didn't know that that this is when it came in. How, why, how didn't you know? Well, I don't have a password to your system, you know. Like it's kind of so he's trying to find where we have those missed opportunities, um, kind of like the I don't know, like the classifieds, like you know, redhead looking for brunette on train five two eight, like on Saturday at ten a.m. So you know, like he's he's kind of trying to find those moments. So instead of having these like lost in in passing he wants to figure out okay who has what data and is it cool to share it with each other um so he's trying to find some of those moments but then also um as i kind of talked about earlier there's a there's a few different definitions um that that kind of run rampant in the total overall freight industry uh detention demerge being kind of two great examples of that because demerge and detention are often called per diem or or um you know like I don't know, dwell fees or there, there's all these different things. And the FMC is kind of in general coming out and saying, look, quack like a duck. We're going to call it a duck. Um, I don't care what you call it, but we're calling it demurrage. And if it's quacking, I don't care what you're calling it instead. We're all calling it demurrage now. And so that's kind of a, the starting point of where um, this MTDI through Commissioner Benzel is, is going is they're working with a couple different classification um, kind of societies out there, some associations that are already um, creating some standards. So um, I know that the MTDI has been working with the Digital Container Shipping Association. There was a um, an, an article that came out on the DCSA's website talking about they're working with the FMC on this. Um, there's a lot of stakeholders that are involved here. And really, um, they are trying to kind of come up with those common data standards, those common data moments um, to figure out how we can move forward as an industry and and really make things faster, right? I mean, if we can at least get definitions um, in sync, if we can get the data, like what we already know that people aren't protective over, you know, that that don't have kind of business secrets to it. Um, that's, I mean, it's a, it's a big ask, right? This is a big project out of Commissioner Bunsell's office. Um, but but that's what this is doing. And, and he interviewed a whole host of, of different stakeholders from um, December 2021 all the way through June 2022. Um, and actually, they're all up on the on the FMC's YouTube if you like to kind of see what stakeholder conversations he was having. Um, we'll see where this goes. I'm, I'm really interested. He's been doing a lot of fact-finding. Um, kind of, he's still kind of in that research stage, but I think he's starting to turn it into, well, where do we take it next? What do we turn this into? Is this a regulation? Is this guidance? You know, what, what is all this information? Um, how do we, how do we use it? I love that because it, it, there's so many different, you know, we, we speak, you know, just within any, in any industry about the importance of data, but is that data standardized? Is it, you know, are, are we all working off of the same definition? So it sounds like this is something that probably should have been, you know, a typical government form probably should have been done 10, 20 years ago, <laughs> but it's finally getting addressed. So that's good news at the end of the day that we do have, you know, the, these types of initiatives that, that, that are going on. Switching gears a little bit as, as we kind of, you know, round out this interview, let's talk about the creator side of things because 
you're a creator, you, you've entered the, you know, the maritime industry for, or you've been in the industry for a long time, you're the owner of Squall Strategies. And so you're using your different, you know, social media platforms and things like that in order to, you know, promote whatever is going on in the industry. And part of that is having conversations like this. But I, I, I wonder where did that, I guess that passion start for you to, to say, you know, is, would there needs to be greater awareness? There needs to be greater education out within the maritime industry. What made you get started with with creating that general awareness? Yeah, great, great question. So, um, you know, I worked for the Federal Maritime Commission for a while. I was down in D.C. working there. Um, loved it. Just had a great time. Um, but had you know had had a boyfriend who didn't live in town. You know, so we were doing long distance, and so we got engaged. And I mean, this is all the personal side of how the business came to be. Um, but we we were trying to decide: do we do we stay local or or just do we go up to Rhode Island, which is where he was living, or do we stay in D.C.? Um, you know, we we ultimately decided to move up north. I was so fortunate to get a job at the Port of Boston. So I got to see kind of the helicopter federal regulatory side of the Federal Maritime Commission. But then I got to see the boots on the docks port side, um, which gave me a really interesting perspective of what it felt like to be a user of the industry. Um, and they say if you've seen one port, you've seen one port. But to actually see the inside workings of a port um, was really just so... I told anybody who was down kind of on the docks, like, let me know when anything interesting happens. If a vessel comes in and just wants to take water, I want to see it. Like if they're, if they're, if they're, you know, if they're offloading cargo, I want to see it. I want to see every piece of it. I want to smell it. I want to see it. I want to feel it. Like, so I, I just became this like, okay, someone call Lauren. She wants to see it, <laughs> you know? Um, so I, I just like consumed it. And then, and then COVID happened and everybody kind of got sent home. And, you know, I was I was also kind of longing for the days of having the national international conversation. So when I was the um, Federal Maritime Commission, I was an attorney advisor in the general counsel's office and I was our international affairs attorney. So I was part of the U.S. government team for negotiating international bilateral multilaterals. You know, if the, if the politicals weren't going themselves, um, I was either prepping them to go or I was the, the kind of principal from the agency. Um, and so it gave me great opportunities at a really young age. But then I kind of found that I was missing that once I, I kind of scooted over into regional. Um, and then COVID happened, like I said, I wasn't really able to see, you know, the docks anymore. And, and you know, just the, the whole reshuffle of COVID, i had always wanted to do this consulting thing. I thought I probably was going to have to wait until I like pseudo retired. Um, but I thought, you know, what a great opportunity. Everybody's comfortable with virtual meetings. I wouldn't have to travel. We have a fairly young family. So I was like, how do we how do I make this work? So I, I hung out a shingle at eight and a half months pregnant with my second and uh, was just like, let's just do it. Um, and so I kind of sat there and I thought, look, I have the resume. I have the experience. Um, I, I certainly have the know-how and I have a unique perspective. But how do I sell that to people? How do I tell people? And, you know, I, I was also annoyed at all the LinkedIn, you know, promotional messages that people get. And I was like, I'm a free agent. Nobody can tell me what I'm allowed to or not allowed to say. Like I'm no longer a, a government or pseudo government employee. And so I was like, oh man, like the world is my oyster now. So um, I think I had done a couple podcasts. I think my first one actually was with Dooner and the Dude. Um, Dooner had just kind of found me because I think I started to kind of dabble in type and in some, you know, putting some maritime content out there, just like, here's what I think. What do you guys think? But I was so nervous that somebody was going to come after me saying, you're saying it wrong or you're doing it wrong. Um, and, and I like, I remember those first few months just through and through my head. I just kept saying, fear is the thief of success. Like push through it. Fear is the thief of success. Like you're just because you're afraid of it doesn't mean that it it's real. So I just kind of kept pushing and like, you know, you'd get a couple of people being like, Oh, I want to correct something you said. And I was like, okay, but 80% of the people that I'm saying it to don't know anything about it. So like, even if it's a little bit wrong, it's still mostly right. And I'm, I'm educating somebody. So that's kind of where I, I took it was initially it became this telling people the things I know to try to get their attention to be like, oh, she's somebody that maybe I could hire. Um, but then I found a lot of the questions I was getting weren't necessarily legal. They were like, we love you. We think you're great, but we don't really have a reason to hire you as a lawyer. So that's why I created the second company, The Maritime Professor, because I found there was the, really this appetite for understanding more about, you know, a lot of times the other side of the freight industry. So uh, because I had, I had kind of connected with Dooner early, I got a lot of attention from the surface side. So I got a lot of attention from truckers or drayage or, you know, shippers that just wanted to know more about this mysterious ocean side of things. Um, and, and kind of they 
you know, demerge in detention. These charges were, were racking up. So they wanted to know what the heck does that mean? What, what is moving right now? Like what's, what's happening in the, in the federal side of it. And so, um, that's what I started to do. And so I started doing LinkedIn lives. I started doing com- some YouTube, you know, you kind of just throw things at the wall, see what sticks. And so some of my, my initial, my original YouTubes are pretty bad, but I mean, you got to start somewhere, right? <laughs> I, I love that. My mine are too. It's a, you got to start somewhere, and the only way you get better is 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 by getting those reps in. Now, you, now you've mentioned you know Dooner and the Dude a couple times for folks who don't know. Oh, yeah. They're the host of What the Truck over on Freight Waves, mostly on on the trucking side of things. But I I was a lot like them. You know, I I, I come from the trucking side of things. So this podcast, Maritime Means, you know, has been a really um, it's been a really fun journey into the world of maritime and being able to talk to to, to folks like you who have that area of expertise where we can. Continue Continue, you know, the learning process of learning the the intricacies of, of the global supply chain. So, really, really thankful for for you and all of your expertise um, that that you are sharing with us today. But as we kind of you know close out this conversation and this chat, what do you have on the horizon for for twenty twenty three? Are there any stories that you know maritime professionals should be on the lookout for? What are you on the lookout for that we should be on the lookout for? You know, all that kind of good stuff. Right off the bat, I just want to say I'm so excited for for Spire to have this Maritime Means podcast because I love the attention. There's so much room for everybody here to to be discussing maritime. And the more that people understand about it, the less mysterious the supply chain gets generally and the less likely we are to have these real big problems that we've had over the past few years. I mean, we got to break down these silos. And so that's what I kind of always try to do. And I love that this is a maritime-focused uh, a podcast. So, so the things that I'm looking for is I think detention to merge gets cleaned up. Um, you know, maybe not big, big moves, but I think that there's some broad brush strokes that the FMC is going to be putting out there. Um, we have the 13 invoice requirements that came out from Azra, um, but I think we're going to see a lot more of really just kind of cleaning it up. It's, it used to be the wild, wild west. And now there's going to be a few rules and not a lot of rules. It's going to be a light touch, but I think we're going to be surprised to see how fast that cleans up the industry. Um, at least from that side, because detention emerged, they're supposed to be incentivizing people, not just leaving their stuff everywhere, you know, getting their stuff out of these boxes. It became a profit line. It's not supposed to be a profit line. It's supposed to be found money. Um, and I think it was relied on to be a profit line and, and that's just not how it should be treated. Um, I think we're going to see finally some movement on the ILWU and the Pacific Maritime Association, the labor agreement um, on the West Coast. Um, I'm not sure what it's going to look like, though. I'm, I think that that's really the big X factor. I think that's why we're seeing New York and New Jersey as our number one import uh, port in America right now. Or I don't know if they're import, but the busiest port in America right now. Um, I think because in part, people wanted to move away from the the you know, mystique or not mystique, but the, the not knowing the, what was going to happen on the West coast. And so there's a little bit more reliability. The East coast ports have met that challenge. They've been investing in infrastructure for years now. I mean, right. They can't just flip a switch and have a new crane it, that those takes years of planning and they just happen to be kind of hitting at all at the right time. Um, so I think we're going to see that. I think we're going to see a lot more diversification of ports of entry. Um, you know, maybe people are going to be starting to use some medium sized carriers instead of just the big, big guys. Um, just because that makes it more more options for which ports they can come into. So if we do have backups, you can still come into a smaller port with with your goods. Um, so I, I don't know. I think we're going to see, um, and I, and I think a return to normal. I think we're going to see a balance in in the power struggles that were shippers and carriers previously. I think everybody's looking forward to that. Nobody's going to walk away entirely happy, but I think we're going to have a lot less um, real bad heartburn uh, that we've had over the past two years. But I'm I'm hopeful. I think that we are. I love the attention on the maritime industry. I think that that's such an important step. Um, I, I love podcasts like this, Spire Maritime Means, because I think that this is really, really bringing light to the area of the industry that that was kind of a forgotten um, sector for a while. So I'm I'm happy to be here, happy to be part of this. Very well said. L- love that. Love all the compliments for for Spire because obviously we're we're a little biased over here. Now with, with Lauren, where can folks follow you? Follow more of your work, Squall Strategies. You know all all, all, the, all of your platforms. Sure. So Squall Strategies is my legal company. So um, certainly, if you have any legal questions, feel free to reach out to me there. SquallStrategies.com. Um, and then I also have the Maritime Professor. So that's that non legal e courses are going to be dropping soon. Um, just kind of trying to help the industry and just help anybody who's interested in learning a little bit more about the 
maritime side. You know, if you want a one-on-one on what the Federal Maritime Commission is, I'm going to have a course for that. Um, and so it's themaritimeprofessor.com. I also host a podcast on Fridays. It's LinkedIn Live um, at 1 p.m. on Fridays, and then it gets posted to the podcast later in the afternoon. It's called By Land and By Sea, presented by the Maritime uh, Professor. It's an attorney breaking down the week in supply chain. So we kind of cover everything. I'm all about translating um, the industry for everybody to understand. I, it shouldn't be a mysterious thing. It shouldn't be only legalese. It, it should be like, okay, here's what's going on. Here's what's happening. Here's why it's complicated. And here's here's what it actually means. Love that. that. That's a big reason of why we wanted to have you on the show. So so appreciate all of your time, Lauren, and sharing all of your insights. You've given us a lot to be on the lookout for in 2023. So I encourage everybody to go and follow more of your work. We'll list uh, you know all of your, your links in the show notes, just to be sure. But thank you again, Lauren, for, for, for coming on Maritime Means. Thanks so much, Blythe. This was great.